Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode one of a brand new Harney's podcast, Harney's Market Insights. And tonight we'll be talking about what is perhaps the hottest topic in equity capital markets around the world, the SPAC, what it is, where did it come from, and what does it have to do with the BVI and Cayman? I'm George Weston, a partner in the Harney's corporate team, and I'm joined by my colleague, Murray Roberts, who's based in San Francisco. Thanks, George. Yeah, hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Murray Roberts. I'm a director for Harney's Fiduciary. Uh, so today, yeah, as George said, we're going to be talking about special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs in North America. Now, these vehicles have been around for a while. And George, you and I have been around for long enough in this market to have worked on some of the deals that were happening as a result of SPACs that listed in the last boom, sort of seven, eight years ago or so. And I think it's fair to say, though, that the SPAC boom that happened in 2020 was you know, pretty much unlike anything the market had seen before. Now, for folks like me who, who like digging through the data, there's some great resources out there, SPAC Insider, SPAC Research, and, and other databases. And looking through some of these stats from 2020, there were just under 250 SPAC IPOs that took place last year. And on average, they raised about $330 million each. And to put that figure in context, it's about five times the number of SPAC IPOs that happened two years before in 2018. And I think what's really interesting from our perspective, George, is just over a third of those SPACs were incorporated in Cayman or the BVI, predominantly in the Cayman Islands. And we'll get to the offshore part of it a bit later, because I do think it's a really interesting aspect of this phenomenon. But maybe first, George, you can run through a couple of things. You know, fundamentally, what is a special purpose acquisition company? And, you know, is there a typical... SPAC life cycle? What does a typical SPAC life cycle deal cycle look like? Thanks, Murray. Uh, great questions. Like, like you, I'm a bit of a nerd. And certainly for me, uh, it's the history rather than the data of SPACs that interests me. And these vehicles have been around a long time. Um, years ago, what would happen is that a company was listed on the stock exchange and it would be sat there and it would sell off its operating business. And so you'd be left with just an empty shell sat on the stock exchange. But listing a new company is pretty pricey. So some of the guys who ended up with these empty vehicles realized that actually they could sell those empty vehicles off uh, to other operating companies that basically wanted to take advantage of their existing listing on the cheap. And so the sort of blank check or shell company was born. From that sort of humble beginning, someone had the idea, well, that's, that's great. Why don't we go out and list without an operating business and raise money that way? And people started to do that. And so that really was the root of the modern SPAC. As Murray says, those things, these things were incredibly popular for a little while um, around 2010 when the debt markets were still severely constrained and it was incredibly easy on both sides of the Atlantic to raise money. And like Murray, I was involved in some of these things back in the UK when they were going gangbusters. The regulators and the markets sort of soured on them, at least in the UK. They never quite went away in the US, but as Murray says, they've been coming back in a really strong way recently. And at heart, essentially what you do with a SPAC is you trust the principals and the operators of the SPAC to get you a better return on your investment than you either could or even would be able to get yourself. 
So you put you put your money together with a bunch of people, you get this thing listed, and listing is quite expensive. But if you share it between enough people, it's fine. Uh, and having no operating business does make it a bit easier in terms of things like financial statements and everything else. So you put together this SPAC. Uh, you've got a pool of money. You've now got a listed company. And what you do is you go out and try and buy something. And the idea principally, and most obviously, is that you go and buy a private business that doesn't have the advantage of the stock exchange listing. You typically call it a business combination, this sort of acquisition that you make, but it isn't really a business combination because it's not like there's two businesses coming together. There's just a pool of money and a stock exchange listing on one side and an operating business on the other. But you put that together, you go out and do the deal and off you go. So really, there's three stages to the SPAC cycle. There is the pre-IPO planning and implementation. There's the IPO itself. And then there's this finally this stage where you go out and you make an acquisition or to use the terminology, uh, make a business combination with someone else. And that cycle as a whole varies between SPACs, but typically you're talking about two or three years. And under US regulatory rules, uh, SPACs can be punished if they go beyond or extend that period, which is actually one of the big differences between the, this current SPAC cycle and the UK SPACs that Murray and I used to work on, because it's just now a much more tightly regulated industry in which investors are given much more protection. That's super helpful. Thanks, George. Um, so briefly going back to the, the offshore element that we, we touched on earlier, one of the things I've, I've found really interesting is to go through some of the business combinations that have happened in the last year or so particularly where the SPAC was domiciled in Cayman or BVI. And what really jumps out at me when I look through some of these deals is just a wide range of, of targets that have been taken public by offshore SPACs, tar targets both in terms of, of industry and geography, so where they're based. Um, so just to give a, a few examples for the folks listening, in October last year, there was a Cayman SPAC that took public a, a Boston-based uh, therapeutics company that was focused on, on neuroscience diseases, um, also last year, there were a couple of BVI incorporated SPACs that acquired um, a blockchain-focused fintech company in Hong Kong. There was a Chinese live streaming video platform called SciEnjoy that was, was taken public by BVI SPAC. So as I say, it's a, a really broad range of, of targets that sponsors are looking at. Um, in, in terms of structure, um, traditionally, it's been the case that sponsors who are in the market for a US-based target would typically form a a domestic SPAC, normally in Delaware, and sponsors who are in the market for a, a foreign target, so a non-US target, would generally form the acquisition vehicle in Cayman or BVI. And in terms of the business combination and the choice of domicile after the DSPAC transaction, there's a whole host of, of complex US tax points that can arise depending on you know, exactly where the target business is going to be based. But generally, you know, if the offshore SPAC ends up finding a target in the US, unlike what it originally planned to do, then the D-SPAC might involve a domestication to the states, or if the original plan is, is stuck with and you know, the, the, there's a non-US target that's identified, there might be a migration to the jurisdiction that the target company is in. So for example, the Cayman SPAC might move to Israel or to, to Singapore or somewhere like that. So... All of this, I think, brings me on to the next point, which I know you want to talk about, which is, you know, for investors, for sponsors, for, for other market participants like U.S. Council, what can, can these folks expect when they deal with a Cayman or a BVI vehicle? Uh, what are the advantages of using an offshore SPAC? Another great question. So I think you can group this into two 
parts. There are the advantages of using a BVI or Cayman vehicle, which are pretty much inherent to the structures, regardless of what you're going to do with them. And within that, you have a bunch of things. You have a modern corporate law, you have uh, sophisticated service providers, you have a sophisticated court system with an ultimate appeal to the UK Privy Council, and you have a common law route, which North American listeners will find pretty familiar and English listeners will find even more familiar. So you have the general advances of using BBI and Cayman vehicles. And then secondly, you have the additional advantages of using those things for a SPAC. You've already mentioned or hinted at one of them, which is market familiarity. So as you say, Murray, three jurisdictions have really dominated as places of incorporation of SPACs, which is Delaware, Cayman and BVI, with Cayman leading the charge a little bit. That investor sentiment and familiarity may be very important. There's also the fact that both Cayman and BVI, actually a little bit more BVI, interestingly, but both Cayman and BVI have very flexible corporate laws, which allow a wide variety of business combinations and acquisition structures to be used down the line when you get to the business combination or DSPAC at the end of the day. And you also hinted at some tax advantages of using BVI and Cayman SPACs. As you say, that may really depend on where your investors are located. But it's certainly true that if you are looking globally at for investors in your SPAC and not just in North America, it starts to make a lot more sense to look carefully at BVI and Cayman. Finally, um, if appropriately structured, a BVI or Cayman Incorporated SPAC may qualify as a foreign private issuer or FPI, which may reduce your regulatory burden in the United States as well. Thanks, George. Well, it's definitely clear to see why in that that context, Cayman and BVI have been as popular as they have been for for jurisdictions to to form these vehicles. Mm. Um, So just to quickly switch focus um, and talk about some of the trends that have been happening in in the market, Mm. um, other than than just the frequency and, and the boom that we've been talking about. So I'm based in California and I've been especially interested in, in what's happening out here on the West Coast, uh, both in, in terms of activity on the sponsor side and the target company side. And, and I actually think what's happening out here in, 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 the, in the West Coast market is really reflective of what's happening nationally. So on the sponsor side, there's, there's definitely been more activity from groups that have got a traditional venture capital or private equity background, um, switching focus to, to backing some of these SPACs. So a couple of weeks ago, um, there's a mid-market PE firm here, HGGC, they launched a SPAC along with Industry Ventures, which is a California venture firm, uh, filed for an IPO about two or three weeks ago, and they're looking at finding a, a tech or a tech-enabled target. And there have been a few SPACs as well that have been launched with the backing of Social Capital, which is you know, a VC firm out in, in California. And they've made acquisitions of a few big West Coast targets like SoFi and Open Door. And, and those acquisitions, so, so far an open door, I think they're examples of, of pretty late stage venture-backed companies that have found a route to liquidity via this reverse merger route, you know, Series E companies, Series F funded companies. And, and there's a pretty interesting school of thought out there that in a strange way, SPACs are almost democratizing access to, to these types of investments that have traditionally stayed in the private market. They would have been continued to be funded by venture firms out here. And suddenly, you know, there's a much wider range of retail investors who can potentially access these these investments. So, I mean, George, anything in this space that's kind of jumping out at you or or particularly catching your eye? Sure. Look, I think that there are two really interesting things to watch in this space. I think the first thing, and 
uh, as you say, Murray, I'm a capital markets and M&A lawyer, but certainly on the M&A side, what seems very interesting to me is that uh, over $80 billion was raised in the US through SPACs last year, and this year has started going at an even faster rate. That is really going to drive a lot of the M&A activity that we see, certainly in North America, but also around the world for the rest of this year. So we're really going to see SPACs, I think, taking somewhat of the role that private equity has historically taken as really driving um, a lot of the M&A activity that we see. So I think that amount of dry powder that right now is sat in SPACs is, is going to be fascinating. I think the second thing that's been really interesting to me, and we've had a number of conversations with people outside the US about this, is how do other stock exchanges around the world respond to this? And we already mentioned that there was some historic issues in the UK around SPACs and a feeling that investors were, were being taken a little bit for a ride that led some regulatory changes there that really shut the market down. But we've been talking to a bunch of UK firms and they've said that they're in discussions with people at the listing authority and the listing authority is quite receptive to that because there was more money raised through SPACs in the US last year than was raised in the UK as a whole. And if you look at other jurisdictions like Hong Kong, for example, which where BVI and Cayman listing vehicles have been very familiar over the last few years, um, there are list codes that would have thought about a Hong Kong listing that are now thinking, well, actually, hold on, everybody loves SPACs at the moment. If we list a SPAC in the US, we'll have a much easier access and route to capital. So I think the extent to which other jurisdictions start to really respond to this uh, and whether Delaware starts to fall away and BVI and Cayman vehicles become even more popular as SPAC starts to spread globally is something that I'm really excited to see and, and maybe take advantage of as the next few years develop. Yeah, I can completely agree. It's going to be fascinating to see how that, that plays out. Um, I fear that we could talk all day and all afternoon about SPACs, but I think we're getting signals that our time is up. So no um, problem. <laughs> a, a, appreciate your time, George. Um, and, and yeah, here's to 2021 being um, just as active as last year was in terms of uh, SPACs and the, the M&A that follows. Thank you very much, Murray. As always, a pleasure. Let me leave you with one question, uh, a slightly unfair question to put you on the spot on. But uh, from your perspective, in one word, SPACs bubble or trend? I would say bubble for the next couple of years. Okay, interesting. Thank you very much, Murray. As always, an absolute pleasure. Really Great nice pleasure. talking Thanks, to you. And uh, if anyone has any questions about any of the matters we've discussed today, please feel free to contact Murray or I or your usual Harney's contacts. Thank you very much.